Homestyle Green, episode 101. What is vernacular construction? G'day and welcome back to another episode of Homestyle Green. This is the podcast all about inspiring people to create a better place to live. And this week I've got on the show Paul Tester of Paul Tester Architecture. He's an architect based in Sheffield in the UK. Beautiful part of the world. Uh, just looking on, on Google Maps, he's right next to the Peak District. Got lots of hills around there. It's quite high uh, north for those that don't know the UK. And he did say that it was just starting to snow there when um, when we had this interview in mid-January 2015. We cover quite a lot of ground in this interview, and one of the things that we discuss uh, towards the end is vernacular construction, which I hadn't really come across before, but it was inspired by a trip that Paul did cycling from London through to Ethiopia. And I was kind of intrigued about what construction and, and design of homes in Ethiopia might have in common with somewhere as cold as uh, where uh, Paul hangs out. turns out that uh, there's a lot of parallels, and I really love that idea that you can design and build for the conditions wherever you are in the world. Uh, before we get into the show, uh, just a quick shout-out to Nadora, who continues to be a great supporter of this show. And if you are looking at uh, a building solution that's probably appropriate to where you live, wherever you are, then definitely check out nadora.com. It's an insulated concrete form, which means that it's very quick to set up. It's like big polystyrene uh, Lego blocks, and then you simply fill up the core with concrete. And uh, there's a bit of steel reinforcing in there as well. So you get the best of both worlds of strength, uh, soundproofness, but excellent insulation properties as well. And uh, as I mentioned last week, it's really, really good in um, conditions that are very wind prone so very good resilient option as well um, as, as well as having those other benefits of, of good speed and uh, thermal performance so check them out energyefficientbuilding.co.nz or nadora.com so let's get straight into the uh, interview this is Paul Atesta and I started out by asking Paul why he does what he does I studied architecture many years ago um, and I came from quite a um, kind of creative background, but didn't really know architecture was for me. But um, uh, through some fantastic education, kind of got really hooked um, and worked for some really interesting practices um, locally to me in Sheffield in the UK um, and um, started to develop a particular interest in kind of sustainable design in all its um, aspects. So from kind of uh, low impact materials to uh, kind of really low energy use um, and then we had a recession so um, sort of 2010-ish I had been made redundant a few times and thought right it's enough I'm uh, not going to kind of leave myself open to this so I'm going to um, try and start on my own um, right. so I set up very kind of what well, I still class it as pretty low key really it's just me um, and uh, um, I yeah I started to take a particular interest in um, sort of passive house I suppose as um, the uh, uh, for me the most convincing uh, methodology as much as a standard to um, 
uh, delivering um, low energy, uh, comfortable buildings. Yeah, and right. so I started to sort of develop an interest in that research a little bit more. And then quite um, luckily, really, for me, um, it was back in 2011, I got approached to um, help somebody design a, um, a house, a one-off house in the Greenbelt, which... Um, we would class in uh, sort of architecture or planning terms as what we call an MPPF 55 house. So um, there's and, a... M- oh, we're, getting, we're getting a little bit technical. Yeah, yeah. M- so it's basically it's an NPPF. So it's our national planning policy framework sets out kind of the main planning regulations for the UK. Yep. And pa- paragraph 55 sets out um, the context in which you might be allowed to build a, uh, a, a one-off house in open countryside. Um, right. And essentially, you've got to be you've got to design something quite exceptional, um, and hopefully, kind of exceptional edge from a architectural from, a, from, from an architectural point of view. Yes, right. yeah. Um, and how you argue that is quite difficult. Yeah, um, that would be um, quite subjective. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I had a client who was very interested in uh, indoor air quality, uh, uh, in particular. Actually, he, he he wanted a low energy build, but he also wanted some really good indoor air quality. And I'm um, sent him a bit of stuff about Passive House, chatted to him about it a bit, and he kind of really bought into it. So, um, And because Passive House is still quite young in the UK, really, yeah. um, it, at the time, it was the first Passive House to even attempt to get planning um, in our local authority area. Um, so right. that was a really strong sort of argument to um, achieve, uh, to, to get a planning permission. Which we did get because um, I'm so guessing was, I'm guessing their definition of um, ap- appropriate for that MPP uh, 55 doesn't really yeah. include passive house. Well, it, it talks about something that kind of is um, kind of at the leading edge of design in all sorts of aspects. So a lot of people will use sustainability as a way of um, starting to satisfy some of those criteria. It's got to right. be a, a really well designed building in its context and in terms of space, um, you know, so it's got to be very specific to its site, um, but low energy can pay a big part in that, um, uh, in, in that kind of argument. Yeah, so right. passive, as I say, Passive House, they haven't still, there still haven't been any built in my local authority area, um, but the, the boroughs, which is this, this earth sheltered house that I designed, um, for the north of Sheffield um, was the first to get planning. Um, so, yeah, so that was a really good kind of early introduction to really understanding how Passive House works. I had to make sure that we could actually achieve it on actually a very difficult building. Um, your typical Passive House is quite, um, should we say, kind of regular in its proportions. It's quite um, uh, rational in its building envelope so that you get your uh, your kind of um, maximum um, treatable floor area for your minimum building envelope yep. and you make sure all your details are really simple. A square um, box, basically. Exactly, yeah. That, that's the way that Passive House would ideally push you. Um, and this, we've got quite a sprawling single-storey building uh, with lots of funny angles um, set inside the hillside with a green roof and bits of wall sticking out all over the place, which has made it quite challenging as a passive house. So a real kind of baptism of fire in terms yeah, of yeah. getting that kind of understood and detailed. Um, and I'm very pleased to say that we've just put in um, 
the final piece of documentation um, to uh, get us started on site. So we're planning to start on site in the next month, maybe six weeks. Excellent. So it's been a long time coming because we got planning in 2012. Um, but uh, wow. pleased to say that, yeah, hopefully the first passive house to be started um, or certified passive house to be started in, in South Yorkshire. So. Oh, well done. This is uh, turning into the passive house show. Yeah, yeah. Not, not by, not by. Um, there's something in there. I, I just wrote about that in, in the um, from the last interview from this week. Actually, just saying yeah. there must be something in that. Perhaps it's um, because it works. Uh, I think the, that's it. <laughs> yeah. I think it's that predictable performance, and I yeah yeah, and I don't feel I necessarily have to guide clients to. Passive House is an actual standard because I think, especially for a one-off build, it still does tend to add a bit of cost, yeah, um, right. especially, especially if you're going to certify yeah, because yeah. There's, a, there's a lot of extra consultant time that you have to pay for to certify. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned that air quality was a big driver. Why was that yes. for, this, for this particular client? Um, they live in a rural area where... They live adjacent to working farms and um, near to also to a steelworks at the bottom of the valley. Right. Um, and, and for them, it was about having control over whether they smelt their environment around them or whether they could just shut it all off and, uh, and sit in their kind of uh, at least kind of reasonably sealed box. Um, right. he, came, he, came to me, he came to me originally having looked at a TED lecture. Um, where this guy in Delhi had developed an office building that produced all its um, uh, kind of breathable indoor air via plants and didn't have any ventilation at all. Wow. Uh, and he was kind of convinced that we were going to make this house that just provided all its air quality through hydroponics. Um, Sheffield's, a little bit di- Sheffield's a bit different from Delhi? Yes, it is, <laughs> yes. And it was quite an energy-intensive way of doing it. Um, and also one that our building regulations wouldn't have stood for on its own. We Hydro- hydroponics would be a little bit tricky. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, I've steered him away from that. And there, we, we might have some pot plants, but I think right. that's about it now. <laughs> you, so, um, before, I, before I forget, um, for those that don't know Sheffield, I've just been checking out, you, you're right next door to the, the peak, uh, peak District, aren't you? Yes, yeah. Uh, stunning part of the world. Yes, yeah, I mean, that's the biggest, I would say that's the biggest draw of the city for most people is not what's in the city, but what the city's next to. Um, yeah, um, right. I, think it's a, I mean, it's a fantastic city. It's very, um, it's got a great um, uh, kind of atmosphere to it, very friendly people, um, lots of hills. We've got seven hills, just like Rome. Um, right. So we get great views and you get views from the city centre right pretty much to the Peak District. So you yeah, can, yeah. So you can see greenery all around you, which is always nice. Um, now you so mentioned yeah. you mentioned that there was this um, low sprawling house uh, was a challenge. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, was that because of the larger surface area of the exactly, house? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So how did you uh, overcome that? Um, ultimately, we end up with um, much higher performance walls than even your average uh, passive house. So. Typically, we say in the UK that you need to have, need to be able to achieve a U value of um, 0.15 for a wall um, and a roof and a floor, um, give or take a bit for a passive house, and that's with a fairly rational design. But with this 
project we're getting well below 0.1 for a number of our build, building elements, which does mean that we do have some serious amounts of insulation. Below uh, 0.1? Yes, yeah. So I think, I can't remember offhand, but I think we've got over 300 millimetres of insulation below the slab and behind the retaining wall, um, which is going to make ground preparation really key to make sure we don't get gaps in that insulation. So that's, that's a pretty thick, so that's polystyrene underneath the slab? Yes, yeah, that's right, yeah. And any structural yeah. issues with that amount of um, polystyrene supporting? No, not at all. This, um, our structural engineers, Arup, are very, very happy with it. Um, it doesn't really matter how thick it is, as long as the compressive strength is um, is acceptable. It could be half is a that, meter thick. Is that expanded or extruded? I'm getting a bit, um, I'm getting geeky now. <laughs> it's, it's expanded. Um, it's EPS uh, we're putting in rather than XPS. And does that mean you have to waterproof it underneath? Um, we are putting in um, some sort of our, our primary waterproofing for the building is between the insulation and the um, and the structure, um, but we are putting an additional layer of uh, kind of weatherproofing to the uh, the outside of the insulation. Although we're we're pretty confident that um, it's a very dry site. It's at the very very top, so it's at the top of an escarpment. Um, so. Um, the ground falls away on both sides and we're in a sort of free draining sandstone and we've actually got to break out a lot of rock to get to the levels we need to get to. Right. Um, so we're, we're pretty confident that um, wet insulation isn't going to be an issue. And how thick are the walls? Um, the walls are about, we've got 300 mil of insulation because it's a, it's a cavity wall construction. So we have 100 millimetres of stone on the outside, 300 mil of insulation, and depending on the, the bit of the building, 150 mil of structural wall internally. Um, so plus um, plaster, etc. we're looking at, um, I don't know, uh, 550, 600 mil thick. Pretty thick walls. And so you've got all of that insulation external to the framing. You don't have any insulation um, between the frame. No, there is no, there's no frame in this because it's um, a uh, an earth sheltered build, um, so it's it's nestled into the ground with a fairly hefty um, half a meter of soil sat on top of it as well. Right. Uh, the walls are um, are all concrete. Um, to it, it's it's basically had to become a reinforced box. Um, right. And to stop it, stop the rear retaining wall kind of being pushed over by the. Uh, um, uh, by the soil behind it, we're um, using all the, the main partitions in the house as kind of spine walls, so they're all cellular concrete blocks with and reinforcement and concrete inside. So. Is that wall insulation polystyrene as well? Uh, no, that's not. That's a uh, mineral wall. Okay. Yeah, so just a decent land of value mineral wall. Yep. Now, um, is this the burrows or is that a different one? No, this is the burrows, yeah, that's right. right. So what about um, light? Uh, some people can, would be concerned building up against or, or sort of into a hill that the yeah, backside's sure. going to be dark. How are you overcoming that? Well, there's sort of two, two strategies. One is about how you organise the house. So putting spaces such as um, bathrooms, storage, um, changing spaces to the rear, sort of um, uh, dressing rooms and things to the rear of the house. Um, and then the other thing is we've got um, a, a 
two sets of uh, clear stories. So the section that allows us to have a sort of two and a half metre high um, sort of um, floor to ceiling at the front of the build. Uh, then it rises to, um, I think it's about four and a half, five metres um, over kind of the main circulation spine. Um, and at that point, we then have um, uh, these strips of clear story windows that bring light into the, the centre and the rear of the plan. Nice. Uh, so, yeah, it was all designed through sections. So there was this series of sections that run along this circulation spine. Um, and each one has a slightly different character. So you start at the, the front of the house, you start with um, circulation kind of dividing the, the living room from the, uh, the dining room and then with the kitchen sort of set at the back of the, the building. And then you move forward through kind of slightly more support spaces, so bathrooms with um, sort of a third bedroom at the front of the house. And then at the end, you get um, two bedrooms um, and one of those has... Um, views not only out across the valley but also along the valley so it um, we we have an end wall that is exposed as well so it's not just um, one one wall face that's exposed we have just the rear of the buildings um, sort of nestled into the ground and then we have three sides that are facing out into the into the open so um, you've got some uh, some good images and a and a, a a sort of summary document on your website here, haven't you? So people yes, can that's right. yes. have yeah. a look at it if they're struggling to visualise that. Hey, I want to um, step back to kind of the principle of why of, of what you do. Um, yeah. Regarding existing regular homes that that aren't beautiful houses sit, um, mm. sitting in in built into hills, what do you think is the the problem or some of the biggest issues you see with regular houses and building today? Um, I think the biggest issue isn't necessarily the standards that buildings are theoretically being designed to. Um, I think there are some significant issues, air tightness and therefore air, and then uh, ventilation are two things that I think could be improved considerably in the, in the regulations. But there's this huge performance gap between what buildings should theoretically achieve if they're achieving building regulations in the UK and what they actually achieve on site. And I think some of that's to do with um, the compliance tools that are um, recommended or or, um, kind of required by uh, the government um, aren't actually that accurate in predicting future energy performance um, and also then the actuality of these houses being built by volume house builders and the, the quality of installation of um, insulation and um, air tightness is still pretty poor. Uh, it's what it's abysmal in some locations. So, so there's uh, a design issue at the front end. You say that the, yes. the design tools or the, the checks and balances aren't necessarily there to ensure a good design and then they're not put together very well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the, I mean, our, our regulations, if you kind of follow them to the letter, are pretty decent, but um, Interesting. the way that you are supposed to, you're, the way you're supposed to demonstrate that you achieve those regulations, the software that you're supposed to use um, and the kind of robust details that they, they regard as being all right, 
are actually not that good. Um, so there's this. So there's a. So there's the aspiration of the, the legislation is pretty good. There's the the way that you deliver that through the design, which is not as good, and then the way that's then delivered on site is not as good again. So there's just all these layers of how you can peel back that kind of performance and make it worse and worse as it goes through the process. Um, and that's really difficult. It's, it's hard enough as a um, working on small projects with local builders who take care of what they do um, and um, are willing to spend a bit of time um, making the project decent. Um, and they still struggle with certainly air tightness is, a, is still a big big issue of finding contractors who um, get it who understand it who you can kind of lead through a project and get them to uh, deliver an airtight um, finished product and yeah it's going to um, it's going to take some time and quite a bit of training and uh, hand holding before that becomes much more place I think yeah and what's the demand for those type of contractors Pretty high, I would say, or is getting higher. I mean, I mean, a lot of that's just down to having a quality contractor. Um, if you can get a really good contractor, whether you're interested in um, low energy construction or whether you just want a, a very nicely finished home or extension, um, a really good contractor is a really good contractor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so yes, the, the the good the good guys are obviously in um, high demand, um, but there are. A, increasing number of clients who are coming to me and to other practitioners that I speak to who are coming to us because of our track record at designing and delivering low energy buildings. Um, and yeah, then that obviously has to translate to finding a contractor that can deliver that. And it is hard. You want to put together a tender list of kind of at least three contractors so that the client can get an idea of a broad range of cost or different contractor styles and things, and that's getting really difficult. Um, uh, the, the good guys can be booked up for year, eighteen months in advance. Wow! So, um, Interesting. Um, so, but that's good news, I guess. That the the market's being driven by people like yourself. Yes. And yeah. uh, from a design point of view, but also saying I'm not going to hand this design over to just anyone. I need yeah. someone, um, and this is what good quality means, being able to quantify Because I guess that, that's the thing with airtightness. It allows you to quantify what you mean by yes. a good contractor because it's not yeah. just, oh, it looks like you've knocked it together well. It's actually going to be measured, isn't it, once, it's, yes, once yeah, the exactly. thing's built, you're going to put a blow door on it. And I think even with extensions where you might not air test it, um, there's then a – this kind of responsibility on the designer then to design it in a way that you know your airtightness can be visually checked. I mean, if you've got a, a leaky house and you're not doing a whole house retrofit, making the, um, the extension sort of passive house performance is probably a bit much. Um, but you don't want that to prevent them from doing a retrofit in the future that brings the whole house performance up to a really high level. Yeah. Um, and they might not want to air tightness. Well, they're unlikely to want to air tightness test um, and pay for that um, when they're only building a 25 square meter extension. Yeah. But if you can design it so that, you know, it's a, a very visually clear airtight line, the, the tapes are all exposed before you put your final finishes on and you can go around and have a really good visual check and say, I'm very comfortable here. Um, 
this is likely to perform well. I've not made any of the details complicated and I can see them all and they're all taped well or whatever the, the, the air tightness measure is that you've, you've um, sort of uh, uh, specified, then um, I think that's, a, that's good as well. You know? Yeah, and, so you don't necessarily and, have to get a full blower door. And, but you, you no, can... no. I mean, you can, obviously it's difficult to quantify what you have actually achieved and whether you really have achieved it. But if you've got a small build and everything's visible and you can go around every junction and and kind of physically check it then i think that's a, a pretty good position to be in um yeah. and it allows you to have a really clear conversation with the contractor as well because you can you can hold their hand through the first stages of applying that air tightness measure you can let them complete it and then you can visually go through it and say look this is this is creased there's a ripple there that looks like there's going to be an air gap underneath that that's right. probably not the best application of tape uh, whereas this, look, you've done that really well, and hopefully you then take that forward to the next project. Yeah. Um, so, you do you to... do you, do you as an architect do that sort of quality control and and project management? It de- it depends on the um, the client's sort of requirements of me and um, yeah, so specific projects. But yes, yeah, I, um, I mean, I don't wouldn't say I project manage because I don't kind of. Um, I won't kind of order materials or coordinate kind of subcontractors on site, but I will quite happily kind of have meetings with contractors at key points where really important things are about to start and right. to uh, discuss with them and um, have a look at things that are really important to the success to the project yeah. so that we make sure that we get those just right. What are sort of the the top tips, top uh, one or, or, or three tips that you would suggest to a person looking at doing a build or, or, or perhaps a renovation, um, what should they do to ensure that they get a, a good home at the end of it? I think the important thing with all of these things is, I mean, it, it's, <laughs> it's one of those things that it, um, I'm kind of feeding my own industry, I suppose, but you, you've got to pay for the right, the right advice yeah. um, and to, uh, to get um, a, a decent architect on board who... I don't think they, I mean, I think all good architects are capable of producing good, sustainable architecture. So if you're a good designer and you're willing to give, not give it a go, but I really take it seriously and do it well, you can do it. So um, I, I don't think they necessarily have to go to somebody who's already a Passive House certified architect or, a, or someone with a major track record in low energy design. Um, but they just need to go to someone who is a, a decent designer, talk to people who've done something similar or, um, yeah, ask friends um, and, yeah, and then be willing to accept that it's going to take a bit of time to do it really well and um, that small investment up front will pay dividends in terms of the, potentially the cost of the build because a good designer should better reduce the cost of your build for you. Um, definitely in terms of the quality of space that you're going to end up with at the end and also the quality of performance and comfort and therefore hopefully your energy builds and ultimately the running costs of your building will be lower and that very small premium you've paid up front will pay itself back very quickly, I would say. So, so find a good architect and define good exactly. by talking to people and, and getting some references? Yeah, I think that's... I mean, I think... Word of mouth for that kind of thing is is a good um, 
is a good way of doing things because he, you know, it's, it's about a working relationship ultimately. Mm. You've got to feel. Um, but uh, I get a lot of people who come to me just via Google, um, and yeah, you've got to, I've got to spend some time with those clients, sort of uh, potentially nurture a project um, uh, before it actually starts. Um, really, kind of try and understand what they're they're looking for, um, and um, kind of give them the confidence that. I'm, I'm listening to their needs and going to deliver what they're after. So, um, yeah, I think you, you could, and often my clients will have spoken to two or three other architects before they've eventually uh, chosen me. So that's another way of doing it is to uh, um, kind of almost put it out to tender. But I, I wouldn't say cost is, is everything. I would say that you've got to be um, comfortable with that. That relationship's going to work and that design is going to produce exactly what you want them to produce. So. And I, I, it sounds simple, but I think you've hit the nail on the head is go find an architect because yes, it's yes. scary how, I mean, do you know what the proportion of, of homes that are built in, in uh, the UK now that don't really see an architect? Um, I'm, I'm certain, I'm sure, that pretty much every home has seen an architect at some point. Um, well, maybe, well, yeah, I think most, but... Um, it's not often, not always a, um, you know, say with a volume house builder, they, they will just have their bespoke, their, their kind of standard types that may have been developed 10, 15 years ago and they're yeah. just falling them out and they're not site specific and they, they don't deal with their context in any particular way. Um, but even the kind of one off self built homes, um, there are probably some people out there who think they can do it themselves. They might be able to. I mean, um, I think most people will still employ an architect up to a certain point. Yeah. Um, but, you, but what you're saying is jump in their boots and all, don't, it, it will um, cost a little bit more up front, but it'll be well worth it down the track. Yeah, and you may definitely. make that money back. Yeah, definitely. And I, um, and I think clients who project manage projects on their own are either completely um, underestimating what it takes yeah. to do it or um, are just very, very brave um, because I think it's a tough, tough job to bring subcontractors together and to take all of those risks yourself. So I think there's that employing a good architect, but there's also employing a good main contractor yeah. that can manage those works and take those risks for you. Yeah. You know, if they, if they give you a fixed price for that project and they mess up the ordering of something that's on their head, not yours, yeah, yeah. Um, and they, they can coordinate those trades, and especially when something like airtimes becomes a a more important aspect of a build um, to be able to coordinate between a plumber and your plasterer um, is really important and if you're procuring those two different trades um, separately um, they're not going to talk to each other there's going to be no interface and you're going to have to cobble something together when they both left site probably so bring in the uh, professionals both from a trades point of view but but from a, a a project management point of view Yes. Yeah. Hey, uh, Paul. Uh, very quickly, what's mm-hmm. what's vernacular construction? Um, construction that has um, come out of the kind of the, the tradition of building in that local area. Um, so, um, in our part of the world, um, we have a lot of uh, uh, timber framed, often crook framed barns um, that then were uh, 
um, subsequently stone clad, and then we had stone um, roofs, and they're quite um, heavy masonry structures that have quite slow uh, response to um, temperature fluctuations. Yeah. Um, and they're normally quite low and long and hunkered against the ground because we, um, you know, in, in Yorkshire we're kind of quite high and we've got quite relatively extreme weather for the UK. Um, and so it's kind of, I think, understanding why those buildings have ended up how they are um, allows you to build appropriately for your your local your, your locality or yeah. the locality in which you're working. And it's not about pastiche. It's not about copying. It's not about um, what our planners like to say of in keeping with the area. It's just about something that's appropriate for its place. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. We haven't. Uh, we haven't. Talk- I, I just bring that up because I see that mentioned on your website and yes, the yeah. inspiration for that yeah. from Ethiopia. Was it Ethiopia? Yes, that was that was one. Um, yeah, I did. A, I spent a bit of time in Ethiopia before I came to study at university, and then um, following my studies, my uh, uh, then girlfriend, now wife, and I um, cycled from um, London to Ethiopia back in two thousand and four, two thousand and five. I, I find that very encouraging for architecture everywhere that you can be inspired by Ethiopia and bring those lessons back to Sheffield. Yeah, yeah. And um, unfortunately, what's being built in Ethiopia generally um, is inappropriate for its place. Um, but there is some very good um, uh yeah, I mean, yes, it is architecture. It's not architect design, but it is architecture. So there, there is some very good building yeah. out there that um, is very responsive to its place. But also in all the countries that we travel through on our way there, that uh, there, there's very particularities to um, to context and climate. And uh, I think it's really important to understand that context and Absolutely. climate wherever you're working. Absolutely. Hey, um Better start wrapping up, Paul. Um, okay. What's, uh, have you got a book recommendation for people? Um, my recommendation, because it sits on my desk pretty much permanently, is um, Sophie Pelsmaker's um, Environmental Design Pocketbook, mm-hmm. um, which pretty much, as it says, it covers almost all aspects of sustainable building and sustainable kind of architecture and, um, to a degree, kind of urban planning and design. Um, it's just so useful to have there and um, I've only got the first edition but apparently well from Twitter I can see that the second edition is now out um, I'm sure even even better um, and I would recommend anybody interested in the topic even if they're not um, a practitioner and just want to uh, to read about the peculiarities of ventilation or thermal mass or um, or the various standards that are available around the world, then I would recommend it wholeheartedly. Brilliant. And uh, Twitter is also a good place to find yourself. Uh, is that true? Yes. Yes. Um, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is PT Architecture. Um, but um, I would say it's also one of the most amazing resources for probably all sorts of topics, but. Um, in, in my experience, for sustainable design and passive house as a community, especially, it's very, uh, very strong on Twitter, and it's amazing how over that particular medium. I don't know whether it's because it's 140 characters, but how willing people are to share. Um, and I so it's a great place to, to go and find out a little bit more. And where else can people find you online? Um, they can find me at um, 
paultesterarchitecture.co.uk. Um, I have a Facebook page, um, which will be Paul Tester Architecture, but I can't remember the exact Facebook location. That's right. I, also, I also find myself on Pinterest quite a bit at the moment as well. I find it a useful tool to, oh, share, excellent. to share things with clients. So I'm also PT Architecture on uh, Twitter, sorry, on Pinterest as well. Right. Well, I'll link all those up so that people can find them and uh, yeah, definitely check out the images of uh, the boroughs and some of the other work you've been involved in. Um, thank you very much for your time, Paul. I really appreciate it. Pleasure, Matthew. And, thank you for uh, inviting me. Good luck with that build. We'll have to check in um, a little little later on and see how it's all going. Yes, yeah, that'd be great. Awesome. Excellent. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. And that was Paul Tester of Paul Tester Architecture talking to me from Sheffield where he said it was just about starting to snow uh, which is, I guess, a testimony to being on the other side of the world. It's uh, pretty warm down here in Auckland as we're recording this. Uh, we're getting 28, 29 degrees Celsius and lovely sunny, hot days. But we did talk there a little bit about vernacular construction, which was building to the environment that you're in. And that is a concept that is applicable everywhere we also talked about Passive House, which just keeps coming up on this show. And uh, thanks for the great feedback, um, Bronwyn and others on Twitter and around the place, who have said that they'd be quite happy for this to turn into a Passive House show. Well, it's kind of happening uh, by accident. It's I definitely didn't sit, didn't set out to create a Passive House show, but um, there's definitely something in there that, um, I don't know, maybe it's just because it works. All right, that is enough for me for this week. So it's been a little bit of a long episode, but I hope that was worth it. I hope you enjoyed that episode with uh, Paul. If you did, uh, and even if you didn't, then I'd love to get your feedback on the show either directly. You can email me, matthew at homestylegreen.com. I'm also on Twitter every day. It's at mcutlerwelsh, C-U-T-L-E-R-W-E-L-S-H. I'm also on Facebook, and I'd love to uh, build up the Facebook community a little bit. Um, I'm, I've been a bit slack on that, but um, feel free to leave a question there. I think it's a great forum for asking questions and bouncing ideas off each other. So head on over to uh, uh, facebook.com slash homestylegreens, nice and simple. And would also love to get more comments on iTunes as well. That really helps get the message out there because there aren't that many podcasts around dedicated to sustainable housing design. There are a few. Um, my good friend Ben Adam-Smith is one of the uh, the greats out there, his uh, House Planning Help podcast. Definitely recommend that if you want some advice, particularly in the UK. And there are one or two others, but um, I really want to get the message out there to more people, and leaving a comment or a review on iTunes really helps with that. So. Um, I'd love to do that. Uh, if you have enjoyed this show, then head over to iTunes and uh, log in and leave a quick star rating and a, and a, a review there. It would be awesome. Thank you very much, and thanks to Nadora for sponsoring the show. Check them out, nadora.com or energyefficientbuilding.co.nz. Look forward to speaking with you again next week. In the meantime, go make a better place to live. <laughs>